September of 1919, a young Forest Service employee was sent to a lake north of here where he had a healing experience on the edge of the intact wildness. This conversation was originally broadcast in 2015. At the conclusion today, we will receive a 2022 update from Bill Kite and Arthur Carhart. Welcome. You're listening to Shifting Gears. I'm William Evans, your host. Today, in addition to Shifting Gears, I invite you to join me in Shifting Time. And we have a historical guest here in the voice of Bill Kite. Welcome, Bill. Thank you. To understand what I mean by a historical guest, I also welcome the spirit of Arthur Carhart, who Bill is going to help us understand understand how the earth spoke to Carhartt, and what Carhartt did as a result of what he heard. Thank you, Bill, for helping us in this unusual way. It's uh, Arthur, if you please. Well, welcome, Arthur. Glad to be here uh, under the circumstances. Can you tell us anything about uh, what it was like for you as a child? Well, I don't want to go into specifics. You can read that in, in books elsewhere. But um, I think the important thing to emphasize was that in my childhood, I was allowed to, basically required to go outside and play. And and that that formed in me a desire to be outdoors more than inside. So I think probably that germ was planted at an early age, um, if you understand what I mean. Well, and I think that was the way it was in those days. You were born in 1892 and lived in uh, Mapleton, Iowa? The the Midwest, as it's called, yes, that's correct. And then you studied to be a landscape architect at Iowa State College. Can you say anything about that? Well, again, I don't think that's the important part to to talk about today, Uh, that education was uh, followed by uh, a stint in the Army in World War I. So that also helped to format who I am. And tell us about your first job. Well, it had the strange title probably to some years of Landscape Recreation Engineer. And uh, it was with uh, the U.S. Forest Service out of Denver. At that time, it was a district called District 2 instead of Region 2. And I was there for a little over two years um, and able to do uh, something that had never been done before. And what was that? Well, it came about in 1919 when I was asked to go to Trapper's Lake and survey for um, for homes, summer homes along the lakefront there. I, I did what I was asked to do, but something happened along the way that changed my life uh, Changed changed my life for the better, uh, I might say. And were you there alone? I mean, did you have somebody helping you? You were trained as a surveyor, right? 
I was. I was doing that work myself. Uh, I did find a couple of guests one night. I spent some time with them who lived in one of the, the cabins on the lake at that time. Um, and when they found out what I was doing, they, they were really uh, trying to convince me in, into the wee hours of the night to, to not uh, build uh, more homes or any more uh, residence or habitation along that, uh, that lake. But as far as the work you were doing, surveying these these potential home sites, is that correct? That's correct. You see, at that time in the Forest Service, you could uh, you could lease sort of a long term lease a summer home site and and build on that site um, on the forest in in, in the forest. At, at that time, the, the philosophy of the use of public lands ha- was developing, and I, I was part of that belief that um, in order to see the land, you have to get people to it. And so you have to engineer roads to get people to the edge of where you want them to, to go to experience something greater. And, and tell us about what Trapper's Lake was like in those days. Well, I had, uh, I had worked on the San Isabel National Forest building campgrounds. And, and when I got to Trapper's Lake, I'd never really um, seen a landscape quite like that. And it, it really got to me as I worked there more and more. And in one particular instance, I was uh, walking along the lake shore, and it was as if a voice spoke to me. It was it was really a realization in my heart, listening to, to my heart resonate with the land. It, and it was quite an experience. Uh, it, it really affected me. And as a writer, having, having written uh, I think 200 books, maybe that's the last count, I, and, and over 4,000 papers. I, I, I find it hard to put into words and express what happened there in, in, in the change of my life and following what you might call a, a calling. Well, tell us a little more about the voice and what you heard. Well, I, I could feel the presence of, of uh, call it what you will, a spirit, the, the the ancestors on the land who were there before. There was something that touched me deeply in my core. And, and you know, it, it was a communion with nature, a connection that, that was established that I think we all long for. And each person has that ability to what I call recreate. And not, not just the recreation side of it, but it's, it's always there, that experience waiting for us. It, there's a wildness in nature that's true to life as, as we know it but haven't experienced it. And I believe that it's that sort of realization uh, that really, to me, the best use of the land, the best use of the land is for the greatest good, for the greatest number. And it, it truly speaks to you. If you're there, you have two choices when that happens. You, you can run scared, always looking back over your shoulder the rest of your life, trying to get away from yourself. Or Really, for not answering the call of duty given to you at that time, a calling, as I, as I said, it's a gift. Or you can accept it, and that energy then has happened at Trapper's Lake of, of the idea of wildness in a place set aside for that wildness. It, it was catching, and, and Aldo Leopold had the same ideas about the same time, and we met and talked about that and were able, I, I might say, to forge then the philosophy that never had been present before in this country, especially among the Forest Service, was a preservation of wild lands. Well, I, I knew you uh, you connected with Aldo Leopold, but I, I don't want to don't leave Trapper's Lake quite yet. I'm, 
I'm interested. So you heard this voice and you got this sense of of the land and the wildness, but it doesn't sound like you were frightened by it. You did you uh, you felt a kinship with that message? Yes, it resonated with with my own beliefs, and, and I think so many times we fight that voice within us that's trying to tell us the thing we need to do next in our lives. And, and we fight that because it's the unknown. And, and that fear can drive us away, as I said before, the rest of our lives in looking back at what could have been uh, that wasn't. And, and to me, it, it's, it's all, it, you know, it's a radical idea that deserved a radical document, which I, I did write, that it's a constitutional document that, that would promote the general welfare of people because everybody has the right to that experience. It's public land. And we owe it to ourselves and our, our posterity uh, to guarantee that, that that land stays in public ownership because that voice can speak to each of us. It's, it's really our own different experience. Every person has a different recreation when they go into the wilderness, you know, that, that we call it now. At the time, that, that word wasn't used in that report I wrote, 1919, to, the, to my boss at, at the district office that said, basically, here's, here's what I did uh, as asked to do, but here's also what I believe should not happen, and that's the, I don't believe there should be any construction of homes around that lake. It should be preserved in its pristine condition. Yeah, Arthur, you, uh, you say a whole lot in a, in a short amount of time, and you're jumping a little bit ahead of where I thought we'd be. Uh, well, that's because, you know, it's the evangelical spirit I've been accused of having that I have a passion that wants to get the word out to people, and I don't have that opportunity. Well, since uh, I crossed the other side, I haven't had that opportunity till now, and and I want to get the, the, the idea across where these things come from, that each person in, in the entire nation owns an equal share of this land, and, and yet there's a limit to to recreation in certain areas because because they need to be saved for us to touch that spirit that that we it's primal that's basic inside of us just waiting to be brought out i don't know how else to say it i don't know what else to uh, to say except i i believe that our survival as human beings depends upon that reconnecting listening to that still small voice uh, tell us when the land speaks and, and says, you know, basically challenging us, what are you doing about what you feel and see? Well, I can understand that. And you had massive amounts of silence if you were alone. How long were you there? How long were you at Trapper's Lake? You know, the time seemed to pass slowly and pass fast at the same time. I, I don't remember the exact uh, I think it was two weeks, if I remember, but I could be wrong. I I, I, I don't re- recollect right now, actually. But you had two weeks then of silence or two months, whatever it was. And so you were able to hear and digest this message, and then it fueled your voice the rest of your life, it sounds like. Well, well it did, because, you know, if, if we're to— if we're to be open-minded human beings and want to want to experience what the land has to teach us, then I think it, it gives us a true perspective on life uh, that we can allow ourselves to live in a communication in, in, with nature in, in, in areas that are under conditions that are fairly undisturbed. The word we used later was untrammeled uh, in some of our uh, fights for the, the many places we wanted preserved that other people had other ideas about. Uh, so, so it was a fight, basically. It, it, was, a, it was a battle. 
You mean the legislation to set aside wilderness? Well, not just that. Echo Park and what happened there uh, was another example But because it wasn't just preserving wilderness. It's preserving the ability to keep that land in a state that uh, it should be kept in. So there were battles, uh, uh, numerous battles that that occurred over the years in my lifetime that, that were inspired all by that desire to, to, to open up to, to the public an experience like I had so that they might have their own experience. So you completed the survey report, and you turned it into your supervisor, and then what happened? Well, the funny thing is um, they actually listened to me, and there were already uh, plans for summer homes. There were already permits that were, had been submitted, and they were all rejected. It was really a, a first time I know of in, in Forest Service history, which was short at that time, uh, you know, established in 1905, that uh, that it happened where um, we listened to one another, where we actually had an effect on decisions that were made that would carry through the ages. Wow. Uh, we could use a little bit of that now. This is William Evans, and I'm speaking with Bill Kite, who's here on behalf of Arthur Carhart, helping us understand who Arthur Carhart was and the significance uh, of what he did. So you completed your job and then recommended to the Forest Service that no home sites be built there and no road be cut around the lake. That Well, the road part, uh, yeah, not at the lake uh, it's, itself, but set back. Uh, even a campground could be built there to bring people uh, so that could be a place where they could start their experience into into the wilderness, into the wild area. So so you have to have a mixture of the ability to get people there to to see and appreciate that in such a way that you don't impair that value that you're trying to save and have them experience at the same time, which is a, a delicate balance. So to summarize what uh, Arthur Carhart's experienced here is that he was given an assignment by the Forest Service to survey 100 home sites around the lake, but had this transforming experience and actually heard and listened to a voice tell him that this should not be done, skillfully communicated his truth as he understood it to the Forest Service system, and they heard and honored that, and... Was there a conflict in you? Did you struggle with this at any point, or was it pretty clear and you just went with it? I, I think it was pretty clear. I was pretty headstrong about it, and, and eventually uh, not not thinking that the Forest Service was moving fast enough on, on this concept, uh, I, I resigned from the Forest Service feeling I could be more effective elsewhere, and I think I, I proved that point to probably be a valid one. And uh, how quickly did you resign? Well, it only been uh, started in 1919 and uh, 1922, I believe it was, when I retired November 27th, if I remember correctly. Uh, you know, so I I, uh, I wrote, you know, that other report there at, at, at Superior National Forest in, in 1921 after the 1919 report, which when I first used the word wilderness and said that I, I believe that uh, – you know, the whole place should be kept as near as wilderness as possible. It later would become the Boundary Waters Canoe Area. But I also then talked with, with Aldo Leopold and submitted a report to Aldo, basically, 
that uh, talked about uh, the ideas that he and I had had already consolidated in in, uh, in Denver. And then he went on then to recommend in 1924 the Gila National Forest wilderness uh, area inside that. So, you know, you start something and you want to see it finished, but I, I also didn't feel like I was the person to continue in, in the bureaucracy and accomplish what I felt needed to be accomplished. And actually, although Leopold had a transformative experience as well, so you uh, you became kin almost in the sense of having uh, nature speak to you in such powerful ways. Well, you know, I think, again, each of us has a unique ability to, to for the, the natural lands, for, for the lands of our heritage, for the primal lands, uh, wilderness, whatever you want to call it, uh, unmarred by, by improvements that we think we can make on the land. In this case, we need to leave uh, those, those uh, habitations and buildings alone and not put them in certain places that the human mind, body, and spirit uh, can have an experience that each one of us is, is, is our heritage, I feel, uh, by being Americans, because this is, this is the, the first place that this idea was actually carried through of setting aside areas uh, for, their, for their own sake and their own value. Well, Arthur, we could use your voice today because we have a, a similar phenomenon going on with a lot of use of federal lands that are uh, being used in ways that many of us feel are unhealthy and, and not consistent with the mission statement of the Forest Service. Well, I, I think if it's similar to the, the battles we fought uh, back in the ni- late 1940s and 1950s, I can see where uh, you never win the war, but you have to go winning a few battles. And I myself was was uh, was accused of being uh, pretty uh, close-minded on a lot of issues, and I was because there were people trying to take the public land away from the public. I wrote, for, for instance, Raiders on the Range and Trail and Timberline in, in 1947, and other things like like who, other articles. Who says sell our public lands in the West in American Forest Magazine, 1947, and, and Land Grab, who gets our public lands in Atlantic Monthly. I forgot the exact, exact date, it was 1948, I believe, and, and our public lands in Jeopardy. I could go on and on. The, the places that, that I wrote articles that were in national magazines warning people because I didn't think the public realized what was happening, about to happen to them, and, and it seems that that, that that gets carried forward uh, to different generations, and they have to fight the the same battles. I don't understand that uh, at all. I re- I really don't. You can now look back at your whole life. Tell us what you learned as a result of this experience. I learned that we live in a time that we can claim as our own when we're true to ourselves, and and when we live by the heart uh, in in junction with those truths that we hold, those beliefs we hold, uh, we have to live them. You can't just say in an armchair somewhere, uh, sitting and writing about how you should preserve the wilderness. You've got to get out and do something about it. You've got to show that you really mean business, that you really care about the public lands, that you really want to, to win the battle, to preserve the right of the public, to, to exercise uh, their, their, their God-given right to, to walk on that land, to hike on it, to boat it, to do what what can be done to get back to that to, to that closeness with nature. So, I think the fact that that caught on also showed that there were other people like Aldo Leopold and and people out there listening right now who have that same belief that the land is sacred, that we need to take care of it, 
that there are certain portions of it that we need to just leave alone. Well, you certainly had a full life of listening to the voice in your heart and became a part of the change that we've inherited and have a responsibility to continue. Just last year, we celebrated the uh, 50th anniversary of the Wilderness Act. Well, I'm glad it. I'm glad it's lasted 50 years. I'd like to. I'd like to see it last a hundred more, and and a hundred beyond that, and a thousand, so that my great great grandchildren can enjoy uh, the experience that that they themselves have to make uh, with the land that that is similar to all of us when we when we step into that uh, that primal piece of, of of ground that we know and relate to at that time in such a way that's really um, really unique and. You know, they, people can work behind the scenes in, in a dedicated fashion with with all the places that they they come in contact with, where people of like mind want to uh, want to do the same thing and make sure that this heritage is is carried forth to other generations. Well, I know you were involved in uh, protecting Echo Park, where uh, where the river comes through there. Tell us a little about that. Well, you know. <laughs> It was it was a fight. It was a fight. I like to use the word conservationist. Uh, a lot of people then stick the tag on top of that of being an, an environmentalist, but we were conservationists, wanting to preserve uh, and fight for uh, the lands that were threatened at that time by by uh, dam builders. Uh, two dams were proposed in in uh, what was at the time uh, uh, the Dinosaur National Monument. And, and, you know, a lot of us wrote articles to defend uh, this piece of ground. But uh, the Sierra Club came on. Dave Brower, who was a friend of mine, came on kind of uh, uh, late in the game in a way. And he had, he had, you know, those people were in, in California. And, and I only say that just because it was true. They were sort of insulated among themselves. And when David Brower came out and took a raft trip down, down the, the, the Yampa there, it changed his whole perspective and, uh, you know, hundreds of people then started to, to uh, raft in that area because that was one of the objections the dam builders had was, this is a dangerous thing. The average public can't enjoy this. This is only for elitists. <laughs> it wasn't the case at all. Uh, as is usually the case, wilderness areas sometimes uh, are overused because of individuals who don't really understand uh, what they're doing on the land and how to have the land ethic they need. So so that was another battle that I was proud to be a part of and. uh and uh, you know there there's a book about it. It's called A Symbol of Wilderness that, that that shows the part that was played by many many people. It wasn't just one of us. It was a group of people and another group of people that were dedicated to the same cause. And uh, I hope that's preserved today and uh, and and not infighting among the same uh, groups that have the same desire to accomplish the same thing because that's self defeating. Well, I know David Brower took uh, the. The building of Glen Canyon Dam is a great personal loss and defeat for him. Did you have any challenges or things that you uh, would do differently if you could look back and change anything and we could learn from it? Well, I, I don't know because, um, you know, there was a threat to even build dams in, in the Grand Canyon, and I believe it was Eisenhower then who who uh, came across, a, I don't know if it was an executive order or if— uh, how he did it, but came across the fact that dams couldn't be built in national parks. Well, you know that—that's what a lot of us thought before uh, he came up with that, uh, uh, with with that uh, executive order, whatever it was. And and so, again, history kind of tends to repeat itself, and these battles happen 
over and over for different reasons and different pieces of ground and different groups of people. But you have to choose your side. I, I guess that's what I want to leave with you today is you've got to choose which side you're on. It's, it's not I, I can straddle the fence here. We're talking about the survival of the spirit of human beings and being able to relate to the, to the landscape, uh, the natural landscape. So you've got to pick sides here. It's not something you can just willy-nilly go about your daily affairs and think somebody else will do it because you're that somebody or maybe nobody will. Thank you, Arthur. My pleasure. This is William Evans. You've been listening to Shifting Gears. We've been in a conversation with Bill Kite, who's brought to life for us in all his fire and evangelical enthusiasm, the work and worry of Arthur Carhart. Well, Bill Kite, the uh, the poet and the writer, um, that was pretty interesting. You kind of caught fire there. Well, you know, I think in that period of time, well, for anything, if if you're going to be passionate, you're going to have to be really passionate to get uh, your cause across to other people. But they were up against some very powerful influences. They were up against um, a lot of money. Uh, and so I think in order to be effective, you've got to be zealous. Well, and that's part of our wholeness. That's part of who we really are. And it was wonderful. Thank you. Well, you're welcome. It is now 102 years since Arthur Carhart visited Trappers Lake and seven years since we recorded this original conversation, Bill. How do conditions seem to you now in 2022? It's kind of not fair to try to speak for Arthur because I've matured quite a bit in realizing that you can't have change and expect it from other people until you have it yourself. And until I feel like I have really treated the earth the way it should be treated and then I've become not um, a victim or not um, a contributor to the mess that we're in in the world today, then I still have a job to do. And so I, I continue to work on myself and hope that listeners will do the same because we just can't tell each other uh, what to do in today's world. We really need to work together to accomplish the things that are most important to continue life on this earth in a better fashion than we've left it. Thank you, Bill. Affirming your right to be is always a helpful reminder for all of us in a time like this. You've been listening to an updated broadcast of a 2015 archival conversation with Bill Kite. This is KDNK. Thank you for listening. <laughs>